Pod Save America is sponsored by the Financial Times. Knowledge is confidence, and reading the Financial Times means you can do more than just catch up. You can stay one step ahead across topics such as politics, tech, business, and climate change with articles like The Unexpected Revival of America's Trade Unions or How China's Slowdown is Deepening Hong Kong's Existential Crisis. Visit ft.com slash podsave to read free articles and subscribe. That's ft.com slash podsave. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm John Lovett. I'm Tommy Vitor. On the pod today, our interview with Senator Brian Schatz, who stopped by Cricket HQ on Friday and joined us for some listener Q&A with What A Day's Priyanka Arabindi. We talk about impeachment, we talk about the Senate, and a lot of other issues in the news right now. Boy, did we have some cues for his A, you know? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but before we get to that, uh, we're going to start by talking about 2020 and how Joe Biden's frontrunner status is affecting the primary race. Also, some housekeeping. A new episode of Love It or Leave It dropped over the weekend. Our Texas tour has come to a fitting conclusion. I don't know. But we had a great time in Dallas. We had a great time in Austin. The Dallas show is out right now. I spoke to Julian Castro, presidential candidate, Texas native. He played queen for a day, the latest candidate to face the gauntlet. We had Emily Heller, Colin Allred, a member of Congress from Texas. Christian Hernandez, an activist with DSA. It was a really great show. On the latest hysteria, Aaron Ryan and Alyssa Mastromonaco talk about the frightening fetal heartbeat bill just signed into law by Georgia's governor. And check out our latest candidate bonus episode where Tommy talked with California Congressman Eric Swalwell. Finally, we are on the road this week in Brooklyn and Washington, D.C. Instead of a Thursday pod, we'll be releasing the Brooklyn show on Friday morning, and you'll hear the D.C. show on Monday. All right, before we get to our conversation with Brian Schatz, uh, let's talk about the Democratic primary. Okay. Since Joe Biden entered the race a little more than two weeks ago, he has only increased his polling lead. The average national polls show he's got a 27-point lead over Bernie Sanders, the next closest candidate. He's about 13 points ahead in New Hampshire, and a new poll out this weekend showed him up more than 30 points in South Carolina. Two big caveats here. One, we have nine months until the first votes are cast. Uh, We haven't even had the first debate, and... If we all recall, Donald Trump did not even enter the race until June in 2015. Uh, Second big caveat, Biden's lead in Iowa, where many of the other candidates have spent a lot of time, is an average of only four points. Uh, Guys, some pundits predicted that Biden's best day in this race would be the day before he entered. (laughs) Um, That has not come true. Um, What do you think explains his current strength as a candidate at this moment in time? Because... Like we, we, we like to say over and over, it's only a snapshot in time. <laughs> that's, our, that's our classic phrase. It's only a snapshot it's in time. That's not why, predictive. That's why. It's just a snapshot. <laughs> I think part of it is probably the fact that he is basically a celebrity. I think 2016 taught me a lot about how celebrity can overwhelm all the things we think we know about politics. Uh, remember that guy Trump got elected. And, and Biden is the closest to that level of fame. Um, you know, I also think that electability is is been his core argument and it's something people are looking to hear and because no one knows what electability means you just have to say it a lot and people assume therefore you are electability the question we all will be asking ourselves is will this be 2016 where trump 
shot ahead to a big lead early and just maintained it? Or will this be like every other election before it where people rose and fall throughout the race? I don't think we know that yet. Yeah. I also think, I mean, Joe Biden spent eight years as vice president to the most beloved Democrat in the entire party. Barack Obama has a 95% approval rating among Democrats. And when people see Biden, they think he's the guy that not only Obama picked, but he supported Obama's policies and Obama's presidency lockstep for eight years. And most Democrats are very happy with Obama's presidency. They're also very happy with the fact that he uh, won twice. That he won twice. <laughs> That's right. And I think we also have learned, and we've said this before, um, most Democrats are not as ideological as you would assume from reading Twitter, um, which is why also you have like people who say Biden is their first choice. A lot of them say Bernie Sanders is their second choice mm -hmm. and vice versa. People who Bernie Sanders is their first choice. They say Joe Biden's their second choice. So that does not fit well with the wars that rage on Twitter every day. Yeah. <laughs> Biden has sort of defanged uh, some of the loudest voices on Twitter, at least so far. I think a lot of people assume that he would they would surface old quotes and votes and statements and that that would immediately hurt him among key constituencies. In fact, the opposite occurred. He got a six point some odd bounce from his announcement until today. So, you know, all of this is likely to change when these questions are raised at debates or in paid advertisements or, you know, routinely it stops in early states. But uh, it is notable. Yeah, but I, I do think, Tommy, too, what you said about celebrity is a very smart point. Like, people feel comfortable with Joe Biden because they know Joe Biden and they don't really know. Here's, here's the candidates they know right now. They know Joe Biden. His name recognition is like off the charts. Bernie Sanders' name recognition is uh, approaching 100% as well. And then the next candidate that they know is Elizabeth Warren because she's been in the national spotlight for a little bit too, though her name ID is not as high as Bernie or Biden, but it's up there. Mm -hmm. But beyond those three, most Democratic voters in the country are not very familiar with Kamala Harris or Cory Booker or Beto O'Rourke or Pete Buttigieg or all these other candidates. A lot of the people that that we talk to are, are people who are active on Twitter, who are paid close attention to politics. Of course, they know all these other candidates. And with a lot of those people who pay close attention, the race is actually closer. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. really interesting. I mean, it's a little bit like like right now we're at kind of a self-serve yogurt place. And like we know our flight. We know we know we like, you know, plain tart. Yeah. Right. We like plain tart, maybe with some gaff chips in it. You know, we know that that's something we've had before. I hate the plain tart. I love a plain tart. That's my go-to. But now we're like, you know, we're like, you know what? This is our time. So we're trying a little gay mayor, <laughs> trying a little Vermont socialist. I we're was going to say cake. <laughs> Vanilla cake flavor. <laughs> we, we, we kind of stuffed our faces on Texas congressmen, and now we're not sure if we're just sick of it or actually if we truly love it, but we just... Haven't tried it in a cone yet. You know, we're giving white, things a try. Who are the little white cups here? <laughs> I guess caucuses? I don't sure, know. Sure, <laughs> Fill them up. Uh, I also think there's a difference in what kind of race it is. In 2008, for example, uh, George W. Bush, no matter what happened, was going to be a distant memory. He was not going to win again. And so a lot of Democrats are open to, okay, what's next for the party? What's next? Let, let's experiment. Let's may, Maybe we'll take a shot on this. Um, black guy named Barack Hussein Obama, <laughs> yeah. who was a state senator before that. I think in this race, Democrats are, for good reason, scared to death of a second Trump presidency. And, and so I know we've been talking about electability. You know, we, uh, electability is hard to measure. But I think it does explain 
gravitating towards someone, at least initially, who you know, if who you, you feel comfortable with. If you don't, if you're not totally sure you're going to be happy with some complicated cheesecake flavor, you just fill your container with vanilla and you walk out and you're like, it may not be the perfect thing, but I know I'll eat the whole cup of just it. Just cover it in cookie dough. But, but no, but also I do think that's like, you know, I was thinking about, you know, the polls about Hillary versus Obama in 2008. And one of the things that happened among black voters was there was a long period of time where Hillary was leading. Oh, by a lot. By a huge margin, very similar to what you among black voters. And, and there was a kind of shift that happened when all of a sudden people got a real look at Barack Obama and they were like, this isn't just a fluke. This isn't, <clears throat> this isn't a pie in the sky idea. Like we believe in this person and we think he can win now. And once the idea of him winning became a real possibility, all of a sudden people got behind him. And I think there's, I don't know what's going to play out in the polls, but to your point about how fearful people are, I think that when, I mean, I'm, I think it's actually an important moment to look at polling that shows white voters versus people of color, because right now, I think a fair argument for why Biden is leading is you see the people who feel most threatened by the Trump presidency and who were most worried about Trump winning before he won saying, we want to go with the safe bet. Now, other candidates can make the same argument Barack Obama did and said, this electability argument isn't fair. I'm the electable one. I'm the one who can appeal to the people uh, who uh, Trump has lost. I'm the one who can appeal to the broadest base of this party. And by the way, I think one of the biggest challenges Biden is going to have is uh, people who say, I'm the one who's going to appeal to young people who you need to knock on doors and get out there. But right now, I think there's a kind of, your, to your point, there's a kind of redoubt to safety uh, because the stakes are so high. Yeah, and also you, you notice, Harriet uh, of CNN pointed this out, that non-college educated Democratic voters, white, black, and Latino, um, are more likely right now to be gravitating towards both Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders because they are not paying as close attention to politics and the ups and downs of the news cycle. And Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden are people who they know. Um, now, love it. What you said is, you know, Obama's support among African-Americans changed dramatically once he won Iowa. Right. The key to winning South Carolina was winning Iowa. Which we always right. which we always planned on the, the campaign. The Why do you think so, Tommy, you know, his his uh, Biden's lead in Iowa is only four points. And we actually haven't had an Iowa poll in a, in a little bit. So, you know, it could either go up or down. But what 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 makes you think it might be closer? Um, so Biden has never done well in Iowa. Mm. In 2008, Biden's Iowa numbers never went above 6%. Uh, he finished fifth. He didn't win a single county. So he did, performed very poorly in Iowa. Uh, he has no staff. He has no organization in the state. Other candidates have been there, you know, half dozen times less. They've been a bunch of counties. Um, I think that Iowa voters are likely to remain undecided for a longer period of time, too. So there's not going to be as many low-information voters who are like, yeah, I'm for Biden now. I think they're going to say, I don't know. But, I mean, the interesting thing to watch in Iowa is the number of people who say uh, a given candidate's their second choice mm -hmm. as well as their first choice. Because in a field this big, the way caucus math works is you have to meet a certain threshold to be viable and to be eligible to get delegates. And people below that threshold... If you're supporting a candidate that isn't viable, you can then go to your second choice. And so it'll, it's something to watch. And it's also part of the, the you know, tactical considerations when you decide whether to take a shot at the front runner or not. Yeah. And I think the fact that more candidates have spent more time in the state of Iowa than any other state shows that when voters get to know people more, get to know some of these candidates, they might think, OK, well, 
I started off knowing Joe Biden, knowing Bernie Sanders, but yeah, I've been seeing Elizabeth Warren a lot. And I really like her. I've been seeing Kamala Harris. And I like her. I like people who did it. So I think that's one dynamic at play. Um, how does his front runner status change the dynamics of the race, of the primary race, the fact that he has right now a commanding lead? What do you think that, <clears throat> what do you think that does to the other candidates' strategies? I think it helps out Bernie for a while. I mean, I, I think you're you're a lot less worried about having people take shots at you if you're sitting in second place and you're sitting at first. Yeah, I, see, I was going to say, I, I think, I actually think it might hurt Bernie in this crowded field because I think Bernie's bet is, okay, he's got near universal name recognition and he's polling at about 20% in a lot of these states. And you think, oh, that's not that high. But in a crowded field, 20% could be enough. But that's only if the rest of the vote is spread out fairly evenly among all of the other candidates. To the extent that Biden is taking support away from Kamala Harris, Beto O'Rourke, Pete Buttigieg, and the rest of them, if Biden gets, if Biden's support gets too high, then Bernie's 20% isn't going to get him. Yeah, in. but I mean, that's assuming a static race from now through the caucuses. I'm saying mm. that in the near term, if you're ahead, you're likely to get shot at. And if you're in second or third place, you are not. I mean, I think that's beneficial. I think I, I would bet that uh, the dynamic in this race is going to change somewhat over time. And so I, I would like to not be the front runner right now. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a good point. Yeah, I'm not really sure. I'm more I'm just thinking, like, what are what are the kind of ideological implications for what we're seeing? Right. Because you have Joe Biden, who represents Obama politics. Right. And in some sense, I think we'll I expect to see him in some places give to the kind of the moment and shift to the left to to kind of recognize where the base of the party is while at others trying to articulate a message about appealing to people in moderation, right, well, which will drive some people crazy. Uh, then you have Bernie and Elizabeth Warren staking out this more kind of structural critique of not just the uh, Democratic Party, but of the economy and American politics. And then you have, I think, a mishmash of other candidates who are in some sense doing what Biden is doing while trying to more appeal to the Bernie and Warren wing of the party. And so the, the Bernie really was rewarded in 2016 by a clean ideological debate, right? Hillary Clinton represents the establishment. I represent a left cha left change movement. And now I don't know what Bar who, who Bernie's arguing against exactly. In some ways he's won. In some ways with Biden he's not winning. I, it's a, It just puts him in a tough position and it makes the ideological debate harder to find. Now, to your point, it's not as important to Democratic voters, but it is important to me, yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, we, we, we've said this before at the beginning, right? Which is um, the, the big question in 2016 was, uh, was Bernie's vote a pro-Bernie? How much of Bernie's vote was a pro-Bernie pro -Bernie vote and how much of it was an anti-Hillary vote in the Democratic Party? And if it was... Do some quick math. <laughs> if it was very pro-Bernie, then he's in a strong position. But if, if there were a cohort of voters who decided to vote for Bernie Sanders because they did not like Hillary Clinton, and now that they have a bunch of other choices of candidates who, like, namely Elizabeth Warren, <laughs> who have similar policies to Bernie, or some of these other candidates who said, yeah, yeah, Bernie was right. Um, I'm for $15 minimum wage. I'm for M Medicare for all. And then you have this choice, then it becomes a little trickier for Bernie. There was a great moment. Bernie had an interview, and they asked him, you know, you know, in 2016, you represented what a lot of people considered the fringe views of the Democratic Party. Now, all these years, now, now just four years later, you have all these candidates kind of adopting your worldview. Doesn't that mean uh, you don't necessarily need to be in this race? And he goes, excuse me, I can't do it. You can do it, Tommy. You no. have a great voice, but 
if I'm, why are they in the race? You know, <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's sort of the sticking point for him. Like, you know, I, how much of the vote was anti-Hillary versus pro-Bernie, or how much of the vote was anti-Hillary versus pro-Bernie politics? And now Bernie politics are divided amongst yeah. six or seven candidates, mm -hmm. mostly amongst two, but also a dr trickling down through the rest. Um, Tommy, you said something what? that I totally agree with, which is, you know, you don't want to be, it's, or it's dangerous to be the front runner this early because people start taking shots at you. The question for the field is, who is the who takes shots at Biden, right? Because you also know that in Iowa, if Bernie decides that his role in Iowa is going to be to start taking shots at Joe Biden, yep. Iowans don't usually like that. That's the risk. There's a real risk to being seen as negative in Iowa. Iowa caucus goers notoriously, historically, do not like negative politics before January, whatever the caucus is, February 3rd this year, I think. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, there, there might be a prisoner's dilemma, just like we saw in 2016, where everyone's like, who's going to attack Trump first? Could be Biden. Who's going to attack Biden first? You know, that said... Uh, Elizabeth Warren took a, a pretty tough shot at Biden early on about donations from lobbyists. You know, you could see them starting to mix it up on climate policy over the weekend. So, you know, yeah. it seems like they're itching to have a, a substantive debate about policy that could veer negative. Is that a prisoner's dilemma or is that a tragedy of the commons? Okay. <laughs> I leave it to the Internet to decide. <laughs> uh, let's talk about how some of Biden's opponents are handling this. I do think just to... One more point about Bernie. Bernie's first comments about Biden um, that could be construed as a contrast, right, were, I don't want to talk too much about Joe Biden. Joe Biden's a friend of mine, mm -hmm. but he voted for NAFTA. I voted for against it. He voted for the Iraq War. I voted against it. I think that's, by the way, totally completely legit. fair. Yeah. Completely fair and legitimate. Let's talk about how some of the other opponents are, are talking about him. Last week, Reuters reported that the vice president will be releasing a climate change policy that might not be as ambitious as the Green New Deal. One of his advisors, Heather Zeichel, who we all know and uh, worked with in the Obama administration, said, quote, I respect where the activists are coming from. What we learned from the Obama administration is unless we find middle ground on these issues, we risk not having any policies. Now, no details of the plan have been released yet. <laughs> uh, and the Biden campaign says that Reuters mischaracterized its policy. But in response to the story, Bernie Sanders said, quote, there is no middle ground on climate policy. AOC called the middle ground comment, quote, a deal breaker. And the Sunrise Movement said that Biden's middle ground policy is, quote, a death sentence for our generation. Huh. That uh, seems... Um, <laughs> what did you think of the back and forth there, guys? <laughs> we can wait till we see it <laughs> right. to have an opinion. I, and by the way, you know, maybe the critics are right. I'm totally perhaps, open to that. Perhaps. And I am also very, you know, I am... I think Heather Zeichel is incredibly smart, and she knows this issue better than anyone. Um, I, I just want to... I want to see the plan. I don't yeah. know. I don't, ha I don't know how we can all reach such stark conclusions without having seen it. Yeah. I mean, I guess the, my reaction to the plan depends on what we think it is. So with the caveat, again, that we haven't read the plan, but a, a so-called middle ground climate change policy probably won't deal with the magnitude of the problem. And I, and I would not love that. And I also don't think that Democrats have made any progress on climate change policy over the many years we've been talking about it by trimming our sales in advance in the hopes that Republicans will meet us halfway. We make progress by winning elections and then doing things. Now, if it's a political strategy, I think the jury is still out. I mean, if Biden thinks that this is the best framing and the best way to talk about climate to win an election, then they have to prove it. But you know, the one thing, again, that we know for sure is that the way you get action on climate policy is by voting for Democrats. It's a binary choice. Republicans will do nothing if not make it worse. Republican Democrats will do something. So we'll see. I mean, the best thing the Green New Deal proponents did is they've 
completely changed uh, the left flank of the debate. And they've also forced every Democrat to say this is the first thing you will do when you get into office. I don't think that was true with Obama. We did healthcare first. So I think they've really shifted the way we prioritize climate. Well, one of the problems we had is we did a, we actually had a client, we had a cap and trade vote um, right around the same time that healthcare was happening. Right. A bunch of Democrats in the House walked the plank basically by taking this vote and doing what they thought were right. And then they were, and then the Senate just left them all fucking hanging there. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, because there was a lot of red state Democrats who wouldn't even go for a cap and trade program. I know. Which, for those who don't know, cap and trade is like, Talk about Green New Deal. It is way less ambitious than the Green New Deal, yeah. okay? And so we couldn't get a bunch of red state Democrats to support that in the Senate. Democratic House members voted for it, and a lot of them lost their election. Maybe it was that. Maybe it was health care. Maybe it was just a bad economy. You know, we can argue about that. But um, it. two questions on every Democratic policy in this primary. Is it big enough and ambitious enough to meet the magnitude of the challenge? And do you have a plan to get it done? And... That's that could be non-ideological at times, right? Like, mm-hmm. is Medicare for all ambitious enough to meet the challenge? Absolutely. Do you have a plan to get it done? Well, if you're not willing to get rid of the filibuster, no, you don't. <laughs> well, you know, and also though, part of this, the ability to get something big done on climate, part of that may depend on staking out a claim further to the left than where you ultimately plan on being, because you want to have room to give to some of those moderate Democrats, right? So it's a little it's a little bit of a non sequitur to say we want to propose something more moderate because we want something that we can get done. Maybe part of what we're trying to do right now, especially in this primary, is stake out our vision, stake out the truest version, the, the, the most ambitious version of what we believe in. And then if we have to give, if we have to compromise just to get something done, that's politics. But I, I do think that part of the criticism coming at Biden even before we see the plan is not not acceding to that mindset around Democrats, which is, I think, one of the things that the left flank of the party has shown to be effective. I mean, look, AOC talks about uh, a, a high marginal tax rate, and then the whole country's talking about it for a few days, and lo and behold, it's popular amongst independents and moderates. Same thing with Elizabeth Warren and her wealth tax. You stake out this ambitious position, and then all of a sudden you've made it mainstream, and maybe you don't ultimately get there when the final votes are tallied, but you've actually given moderates a, a way to win, right? By saying, "Look, I made this less. I made this more conservative. I made this more moderate." So I agree with that, and I think I think there's a difference between the policies you propose, which I agree with you, love it should be very ambitious because you, as we learned in the Obama administration, you end up giving a lot, uh, and the politics you use to build support for it. And I, you know, credit the Sunrise Movement for incredible activism and putting this on the national agenda. I think when you respond to a Reuters story that doesn't have the detail planned with this is a death sentence, this would be a death sentence for our generation, you potentially turn off people that you need. Like, I I think there is a way to, like, so Jay Inslee criticized this report as well. And he said, he praised the Obama-Biden administration on climate policy, but said, the times and science have changed. We simply cannot go back to the past. We need a bold climate plan for the future. I actually think if you're running against Biden, that's a fairly effective message. To, you, you start by recognizing that a lot of people in the Democratic Party, most people in the Democratic Party, like what Barack Obama and Joe Biden done. But you said, you know what? Times have changed. The situation has changed. We need something better. And we I can't like, go back to that. I like that Jay Inslee said it from a scooter. <laughs> that was... <laughs> Yeah, I look, I, I think that... Um, I do like that. I do, look, the, the, the activist groups like the Sunrise Movement, I mean, their job is to criticize everything to the right of what they want. That's now, right. I don't know that uh, uh, accusing a politician of mass 
generational murder is the way to do it. No, you do that after the white paper comes out. <laughs> yeah. But I look, I think the reality is what these guys run on on climate policy is important. And it's important to try to build a movement for policies you think are going to be your key priorities when you get there. But what will happen when the next president walks into the Oval Office is you will figure out what is doable. You'll figure out what support there is. And we talk about the filibuster a lot. It's important. It doesn't fucking matter if we don't win the Senate. Yeah. it's a We're, we're a long way away from giving a shit about the filibuster. We <laughs> need to win elections in, in some states where we don't have candidates yet. Well, and that's exactly right. And that's another big problem because... Like, let's remember Arizona in 2018. Kirsten Cinema is the senator. She is pretty conservative for a senator. She is, like, she is middle-of-the-road centrist to, you know, like, she did not glom onto a lot of those positions, a lot of liberal positions. So we do have now a Democrat out of Arizona, but I bet she's not going to be on board with a big, ambitious Green New Deal, and we're going to have to figure out what that means, you know? We should pressure her. We should pressure other people like this, but as we pressure people, we've got to make space for them to sort of come on board, right? Like, it has to be a mix of pressure and also, like, okay, come on board now. Because, I mean, part of this is... If we don't address this issue, it doesn't matter what ice cream we pick. It's going to melt. <laughs> That's exactly. <laughs> well, there's another, there's another good political argument for this from Julian Brave Noisecat, who's the director of Green New Deal strategy at Data for Progress, obviously a very lefty group. Mm-hmm. He said, quote, Biden appeals to white middle class suburban voters, and that's great, but he's not doing so well among young people. We do have a policy out there designed to build a new climate coalition. It's called the Green New Deal, and he needs to jump on board. Said, that's a very good argument. I, I think that, like, I, to me, you know, we can you know, we can talk about where the polls are now, but obviously everything depends on what these candidates do in the next nine months. And to me, what I, I am looking for, not just like as a Twitter pundit, but like as a person, is like I wanna I wanna understand where the kind of old fashioned folksiness of Biden that has come with, I think, some old fashioned positions along the way meets the the moment that we're in and in a way that's not only good policy, but also good politics. Because to their point, he is his great challenge is going to be to appeal to young people, and it's not going to be with memes. Luckily, I don't think they think that. It's going to be with policy, and to me, it's about college, it's about healthcare, and it's about climate, and among other things. So yeah. I, I think that, to me, is actually a really, a really good sign for Biden, because sometimes, candid- you know, sometimes candidates are presented with a problem. They don't know how to appeal to a group of people, and they don't have a way to do it. There's a clear path for Joe Biden to maybe cement this nomination by adopting some pretty good policy. Yeah, what I, what I want to know from Joe Biden is... Does he recognize how politics and power relations and partisanship has shifted over the years that he's been in politics, even since he's been in the Obama administration? Um, Because if he believes that backslapping Mitch McConnell is the way to change this country and get progressive policies passed, I think he's sorely mistaken. And I worry about that. I, I want to see candidates. And this is this is about whether they can win and whether they'll be good presidents. It's both an electability and a president thing. Like, do you not only just have a plan to get things done to change things, but do you have a way to get that plan passed? And so if and it better not include like settlers of Catan with fucking Tom Cotton. <laughs> That's exactly right. Like and like you said, Tommy, if we don't get the Senate back and we're not even thinking about the filibuster because we didn't even make the Senate. Now, what are you going to do? OK, because Republicans probably still aren't going to compromise with you. So do you have executive actions ready? Do you have other things that you can do ready? Are you going to focus on foreign policy? You know what I'm saying? Like there's, how are you going to staff your administration? You know, I mean, there's, there's a whole bunch of things you can do to figure out a strategy to get your plan passed. And I want to see that Biden, and if I was, if I was Biden's opponents, 
that's sort of where I would go. Like, have you have you recognized and understood how politics has changed in this era? And so far, time will tell. <laughs> uh, so one person who's taking Biden quite seriously is Donald Trump. He said in an interview with Politico on Friday that Biden is a front runner and that the other candidates in the primary, quote, aren't registering with the public. Uh, meanwhile, Trump's TV attorney, Rudy Giuliani, was planning on going to Ukraine in order to persuade the for- that foreign government to move forward with bullshit investigations into the origins of the Mueller investigation, as well as business dealings between Joe Biden's son and a Ukrainian oil company. He ultimately canceled that trip after the New York Times reported it, but Trump told Politico he thinks it'd be appropriate for him to talk to his own attorney general about opening an investigation into either Biden or his son, and Giuliani said it's fine for Trump's team to meddle in a foreign investigation. What does this tell us about what we can expect from Trump in 2020, and how do Democrats handle this shit? I mean, they're just going to run the dirtiest race they can possibly run. Including using all of the levels of po- levers of power that they have, including available. things that would normally be seen as beyond the pale, like flying to another country to try to urge their law enforcement to reopen an investigation because it might dan- damage someone you're running against, and then bragging about it to the New York Times. That was the craziest article I've ever <laughs> read in my life. I, like, I I do sincerely wonder how many martinis Rudy Giuliani had before he took that call from the New York Times because it was batshit crazy and he canceled the trip i do i do like the idea of rudy giuliani traveling around the world trying to make trouble because i do believe it will be ineffective on the whole uh yeah i mean what you know Much one like of the, the stephen miller hair dye he used on his fox appearance over the weekend i didn't see it <laughs> oh, oh that's gonna be a treat for me after <laughs> we finish recording the, the before and after there's rudy with all of his very few uh gray hairs and then the next the next scene there's rudy with just jet black hair <laughs> look here's the thing rudy is genuinely going through something and he's doing it in front of all of us and actually one of the things that happens when you have someone like trump in office is that because he's such a primitive kind of creature in his in his habits he attracts people who are really kind of tapping not this is not a lot we don't have a lot of frontal lobe decision making going on right now so <laughs> you get a lot of real base shit and, and it plays out on television but one other part of this is you know it is incredibly nefarious it is incredibly dangerous uh this idea of investigating your opponents but it's worth remembering why this is happening and one of the one of the base level risks of donald trump from the very beginning when you have someone who is so fundamentally corrupt someone with so many foreign entanglements so many with so many someone with so many illicit dealings over the years one of the only strategies they can take to win is to try to make the other person look just as dirty, whether it's true or not, whether you're latching on to sort of corruptish behavior, as we've seen in the past, or just trying to invent something out of whole cloth. And so because Donald Trump is so corrupt, the only way he can win is by making the other person look so corrupt, and that requires doing things that further corrupt the institutions of our, of our country. And again, it boils down to, it comes back to the Republicans who have forgiven so much along the way to make someone this low uh, require so much additional viciousness in order to win. I also believe that one of the reasons they're starting this now during the primary is because they know we have a potentially uh, divisive primary on our hands among Democrats. And so if you're one of Joe Biden's opponents and you're looking at Giuliani and Trump opening up investigations into Biden and thinking, "Hmm, maybe this is going to be good for me, I think every Democrat should stand up and condemn this kind of shit because it's Joe Biden today It'll be you tomorrow. Mm-hmm. He's yeah. going to do this. To, if, if you do, if you think that, like they, this, you know, Hillary Clinton, like we've said this before, she had a long history and a lot of baggage that she had to deal with in this race. But don't think for a second 
that Donald Trump and all of his goons and a, a giant conservative media apparatus can paint any Democratic candidate as a corrupt, awful asshole. Because <laughs> they will know, do it to every single one of them. And so that when, yeah. when stories like this come out, every Democrat should stand up and say, that is fucked up. First, they came for Joe Biden. Right. But, but, I, but I did not speak up because I was at 3% in Iowa. <laughs> but no, it's, it's, it's right, you know, because I think... I think part of the challenge we ha in 2016 is they used the foundation and made shit up, but then also used little bits of truth to generate incredibly explosive and unfair stories, whether it was emails or, or you know, double dipping by, by uh, members of her team and what have you. And uh, uh, so, but then again, you go look at that Uranium One story and it is basically fabricated out of whole cloth. And they have they will still Much run like with this it. Ukraine story. Uh, Benghazi turned into a multi-year fiasco, uh, uh, a political fiasco, uh, because it was expedient and for no other reason. So, And reporters know, are going to play along, by the way. We are going to see not a real... Our, they are not our friends. They are not on our team. They are trying to take people down left and right because you know they, they see themselves as holding people in power accountable regardless of party. So we should not expect reporters to be the ones who stand up and say, no, this is wrong. So I think it's, you know, the <laughs> how much of 2020 is going to look exactly like 2016. And let's just hope it's just enough that we win. <laughs> and that is <laughs> right. So something, something to be hopeful about. <laughs> um, OK, when we come back, we will have someone who is quite hopeful about the state of politics. Senator Brian Schatz from Hawaii. Pod Save America is brought to you by the Homegrown OKC podcast. There is way more to the Oklahoma City bombing than any of us knew. You can learn a ton about it on the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. It unpacks the tragic Oklahoma City bombing and how the event still ripples today and calls for political violence. Just days after the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995, America discovered the perpetrator was a right-wing extremist, Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today, as seen in the January 6th attack on our capital. Each episode of the Homegrown OKC podcast follows the story of McVeigh, a decorated Army veteran who became consumed with rage, went underground, and built a bomb that killed 168 people. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about a better understanding of the political environment in our country today. I think this is such an important story that tells you so much about radicalization, the far right in this country, the things that were simmering under the surface long before January 6th and some of the origins, which dates back to the Oklahoma City bombing. Uh, it's an incredible podcast based on an amazing book. I highly recommend it. To listen to Homegrown OKC, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule Damn. is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. You know, you know, you know. Have you been able to this. squeeze that special thing into your schedule, John? Yeah, that's. I think it's thanks to therapy. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, so you can do more of it. Mm -hmm. More time for you. I. Uh... You know, because we've been doing what a weekday, mm -hmm. I actually put that in my therapy spot. You know, I, I replaced therapy with doing an extra podcast. Mm. It was a huge mistake. So uh, what do you spend time doing at therapy now? Well, now I brought therapy back. I okay, added therapy good, back good. to another time because uh, it turns out talking. That's going to make the jokes better. 
Well, it's really going to make things better for the team. (laughs) (laughs) If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash PSA today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash PSA. Pot Save America is brought to you by Helix. If you're looking for better sleep, you need to upgrade your mattress with Helix. The Helix lineup offers 20 unique mattresses, including the award-winning Lux Collection, the newly released and high-end Helix Elite Collection, Mm. a mattress designed for big and tall sleepers, and even a mattress made just for kids, which Charlie has. Charlie has a Helix mattress now, just for kids, in his uh, race car bed. Very excited, very happy about it. Take the Helix Sleep Quiz and find your perfect mattress in under two minutes, and uh, it ships straight to your door free of charge. They even offer a 100-night trial and a 10- to 15-year warranty to try out your new Helix mattress. If you're a side sleeper, you can choose a model with memory foam layers to provide optimal pressure relief. There are also models with more responsive foam to cradle your body for essential support in stomach and back sleeping positions. Plus, check out enhanced cooling features to keep you from overheating while you sleep. It's no wonder Helix has over 12,000 five-star reviews. And you, you've loved your Helix mattress. I love it. I got a Don Lux. There you go. And there it's you go. great. Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash crooked. That's helixsleep.com slash crooked. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. On the pod today, we have uh, his official title is U.S. Senator from Hawaii, but he's known for his good tweets. Brian Schatz is with us in studio. And, uh, you know, we're going to take some questions. Priyanka's here. We got some questions from the... uh, from the online crowd, and then we're going to do a little chatting, too. Senator, how do you feel about being, uh, play, having your position as one of 100 U.S. senators in the, in the Congress side-by-side side with the fact that you're a good tweeter? I have mixed feelings about that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, okay. We'll dig into it later, I think. <laughs> um, let's start with our latest uh, constitutional crisis. Um, are you in, are you in favor of impeachment hearings? How do you think? How oh, you we're think, getting right to it. How okay. Do you think things are going? <laughs> uh, listen, I, I actually listened to the, the the debate that you're having uh, in a way amongst yourselves, but probably across the country among progressives. What do we do about all this? Um, here's the thing that 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 um, that I think defines the uh, how we ought to move forward. Um, people want to take impeachment off the table. I think that's super unwise. Um, but I also think it's unwise to move forward with impeachment if we don't have the votes. I'm talking about on the House side. Yeah. I think it would be not a good look for us to sort of move to impeach and then we lose 30 or 40 Democrats. And so I, I Do you think I, we need all of them? Uh, I don't know the answer to that, but I think that there is no harm in building the case. And I think there is no harm in doing what Jerry Nadler is doing, what doing what Adam Schiff is doing and sort of pursuing Uh, what your colleague is calling uh, Watergate-style hearings, which may end up uh, arriving at a point where we decide uh, that articles of impeachment need to be brought to the floor. Or it may be that the timing is such that we've essentially made the case of the American public and the election is upon us. So I'm sort of undecided on where this all lands, but I don't think there's much uh, differentiation on where we should start, which is you know, Robert Mueller has to testify, these subpoenas have to be honored, and we have to do aggressive oversight. Do you think what you've seen so far in the Mueller report is impeachable? Like, do you think that he's committed impeachable offenses, or are you still waiting for Listen, I, th- I think there's a couple of ways to look at this. First, the, the there are impeach—obstruction of justice is an impeachable offense. But it's important to remember that when Nixon was impeached, it was the abuse of power 
that was the first article of impeachment, right? Yeah. It was it was Nixon trying to interfere with the Washington Post through his Federal Communications Commission, which sounds kind of quaint, right, looking back on it. And so one thing we need to remember is that it's not just a matter, and, and I think we screwed up a little bit and allowed the whole question to be defined as whether or not there was collusion, which, of course, there's no statute against right. collusion. Um, but the, the, the use of presidential power, even if it is consistent with constitutional law or statutory law, if it is the abuse of that power, that's what the Congress is for. That's what impeachment is for. And so I look at whether or not this president is abusing his power, not whether or not specifically he's violating a, a statute. And one that I think rises to the level um, that everybody should be concerned with is the emoluments clause. Yeah. I mean, he is very clearly taking money from foreign governments um, through his enterprise. And the uh, constitutional framers were very, very worried about this, and they explicitly banned it. And um, we've actually uh, been successful in um, uh, clearing the first hurdle of summary judgment uh, in the D.C. Circuit. Uh, we were the plaintiffs, and we were basically saying, we're the legislative branch, any emolument, any gift to uh, the president of the United States from a foreign government has to be specifically and individually approved by the Congress. And they're not presenting any of these emoluments to us. So we do have standing and they, we, we got over summary judgment and now we're into discovery and things will get very interesting. Okay, so we're obviously at this impasse right now where Trump is, is saying, giving the Heisman to all oversight efforts. Uh, he's uh, exerting privilege over things that make no sense for him to exert privilege over. If we move to impeachment, do you think it would make it easier somehow to make to compel those individuals to come to bring forward documents to testify and to otherwise um, give testimony? Yeah, I don't know the answer to that question, okay. because I think that's a that's a that's a question of both the law and the complexion of the courts. Um, and, and I'm not a lawyer. There is an argument that if you're if you're doing things pursuant to an impeachment inquiry, then it has more legal weight. But mm -hmm. I, I just don't know how that would play out through the court system. Uh, I will say that the that the White House strategy, and I don't think they started this way, but they are stumbling into daring us to do it right. And um, I just wouldn't underestimate uh, House members and how much they jealously guard their prerogatives. So they're just starting to get increasingly pissed off at this. So people who sort of said, let's move cautiously, if, if they're just not going to cooperate, um, then I think you're going to get more and more uh, momentum in the direction of aggressive oversight. And one other thing that I'll say, and this is the, I think it was the Mnuchin uh, refusal to, um, to turn over the tax returns. Uh, he basically said this is not pursuant to a legitimate legislative purpose. There is no more legitimate le legislative purpose than the legislative branch trying to determine whether the head of the executive branch is corrupted. Right. And so um, and uh, that's one point. That's the substantive point. The other thing is that's our call. We get to determine what a legitimate legislative purpose is. Right. Well, it's also this is not a situation where there's no clear law and there's just an argument as to whether or not it's Congress's responsibility. There is a law and it doesn't say if there's a legitimate Legislative purpose yeah, as determined by the executive. There's just a sentence that says, give it to us. Shall furnish. Shall. Shall, shall furnish. furnish. Shall furnish. I mean, listen, when I first got to the Hawaii legislature in 1998, one of the first things you learn is shall or may, right? If you have a bill 
that you think is a great idea, but you don't have enough juice to get it through, then they turn shall to may, and then you can claim credit. <laughs> shall means shall. That's a good tip. Shall means shall. And look, I'm not a lawyer, but I do have a really good LSAT score, and so I, I sort of approach it Prove from it. that perspective. Release the, release the long-form record. There's no there's no need for that. Claiming executive. You can get, you can, it's 2019, you can say whatever you want about what you did in your past. But, uh, so, you made this point about that, that some of this is just about people getting angry. Do you think that explains what's happening in the Senate Intelligence Committee, where now we have a bipartisan effort to subpoena Donald Trump Jr.? I'm not exactly sure what, what Chairman Burr is up to. I'm pleased that he seems to be continuing to work on a bipartisan basis. The most alarming part of this is not that you have a couple of United States senators on the Republican side who are saying, you know, unlawful and, and cowardly things. That's sort of par for the course. The, the alarming thing from my standpoint is that there's like deep reporting from a caucus lunch, right, where it's, you know, twice a week, um, Democrats and Republicans go to separate lunches and sort of strategize their, their, their politics for the week or the month or whatever it is. And they had this conversation about the operation of the Intelligence Committee uh, in caucus lunch. And I just feel like, I mean, that that is not the place for that, John. (laughs) What do the the Democrats do during theirs? Do they just talk about Game of Thrones? (laughs) We talk about Game of Thrones, you know. There's actually the one complaint I will make about caucus lunch is everyone's just constantly applauding everybody else. Literally, there's just a lot of like wasted time going, you're doing great. How's the food? The food's actually pretty good. Cool. You know what? A lot of participation you can tell, trophies being given yeah. out. You can tell, <laughs> great yeah. force feed, Chuck. Great chart, Chuck. <laughs> yeah. You can. T- <laughs> that's funny. You can tell who um, sort of income levels by whether or not people like the lunch, oh, right? So you know, like if, if it's your two square meals uh, a week, then you're you know yeah. just got to the Senate. And if you're sort of uh, complaining that this lunch is gross and they got to provide variety, maybe you've been around a long, little right, bit longer. Right. Mark Warner brings his own. The. Uh, <laughs> 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 Not uh, going to force you to respond to that. <laughs> um, what do you want to hear from Mark's Mueller? Mark's great, and he likes the lunch. All right. Oh, there you go. <laughs> okay. um, what do you want to hear from Mueller? What would you ask Mueller um, when, if, when he finally testifies? I actually think it's important to just let him speak mm-hmm. um, because I, th- I think we just have to have some in- uninterrupted time to hear from Robert Mueller. Yeah. And there were some pretty obvious questions, right, like uh, s- sort of the spin on the ball that, that, that Bill Barr put in, in the first instance and in the second instance and then sort of on an ongoing basis. But my view is that this person, we've like a lot of people have not even heard his voice. And I think that you want to avoid the kind of like Zuckerberg's here on the hill. Everyone's going to try to have their viral moment and put on on social media. We just want to basically give him a half hour, an hour, however long it takes for him to explain himself and to explain um, uh, how he came to the conclusions that he came to. There are some obvious questions like uh, the, the decision that he made not to charge, it seems to me, was based on the OLC opinion and not that there was insufficient evidence, right? And that I would like to confirm what is what is written, which is that he clearly intended to kick it to Congress and um, and Barr clearly sort of intercepted that play. Yeah. Um, but I, my view is that if he goes to testify, he wants to say certain things and we should probably do less talking and more listening. Can I ask a question about the process there? Sorry to interrupt. When you guys have a big blockbuster hearing like that, it sometimes can feel like there's a series of four-minute speeches followed by one minute of maybe a question. Is there an effort to coordinate and and slice up important things we want to get to so that we hear from the witness? 
Obviously not. No, um, uh, <laughs> no, Maybe some, that's something you could do during the caucus lunch. Maybe between mo- rounds of applause for not being in the majority, you could maybe say, hey, everybody, skip the preamble. Well, there, there are sort of two, two things. First of all, don't chew up your five minutes with four minutes worth of, of, mm-hmm. of, of pontificating. Yes, fair enough. But also the sort of coordination of sort of how you follow each other's line of questioning. First, you can do some kind of pre-planning, but sometimes you, what you have to do is be in the hearing and listening to to, to your colleagues. Um, I think Sherrod Brown is the ranker on, on banking, does an excellent job. I mean, different members do uh, uh, more of an aggressive job of coordinating, uh-huh. but when it's a blockbuster, then members just say, I don't care what the play is, I'm going to have my moment. Mm-hmm. And that's when we you know, that's when everybody starts to tweet, oh, everybody should give all the questions to Kamala or whoever's doing or or Dick Blumenthal <laughs> or, or whomever. And it's not so much that any individual is better or worse at, at sort of the interrogating process, although they're obviously, well, but of course some, they are. some are better and worse. <laughs> but, the, but the point being, we just need some uninterrupted time to kind of follow a string. Yeah. And people are, as you know, kind of blowing in, blowing out. So they don't even know what was talked about. Right. And then once they're done, they leave, right? Cool so. system. Um, <laughs> how do you? Cool uh, <laughs> how how are you feeling about the uh, Senate recruitment efforts and our uh, our efforts to flip this thing in twenty twenty? Yeah, I think there's a lot of anxiety out there, and I like anxiety. I think people should be totally like on edge about everything, uh, including winning the Senate, because we're sort of imagining a universe in which we, you know, win the Senate and win the presidency and hold the House, and none of those are are for sure. Um, so I like that people have anxiety, but I think we're doing very well in North Carolina. I think we're 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 doing well in some states that you you know you may be surprised by. Uh-huh. Um, uh, Colorado, uh, a couple of candidates are looking at running in in Maine, um, but uh, it is a little bit early. And I've just sort of gone through the coverage of the sort of Politico or Hill or Roll Call. Here's how everyone's doing on recruitment, and it literally has. If any correlation, it's an inverse correlation with how successful you are in the coming cycle. So I just don't know. One other thought I'll, uh, I'll offer is that there is a tendency to think that the person who is polling the best, you know, in, in May of the odd-numbered year yeah. is the strongest candidate. So that has caused us to get a lot of former statewide elected officials in their 60s and 70s. And I just don't think that that is necessarily who we want. I mean, there may be instances where that's the best candidate, but I think we need a candidate who represents this, this growing movement. And I don't think we necessarily need a, an actually young person, but like a Senate young person like me, like 46, 58, 62. But I don't think just because somebody was governor and popular, you know, in the eighties or nineties means that there are like star recruit. You're basically a Senate tween. Yeah, I'm basically, yeah, exactly. <laughs> How does this recruiting process work? I mean, we, were t- we talked about this the other day, and John was trying to be less anxious, and I was just emoting on a live stream. Like, is it is it Schumer and the DSCC recruiting people? Are others helping out that process? How does it work? It's, it's, it depends state by state. So, you know, there are certain states that you, you sort of go through uh, uh, who, whoever is at the top of the food chain, right? And mm-hmm. um and so there's a fair amount of that. And then I think maybe because I come from Hawaii and we have primaries and that's, you know, that's the way we roll, that I think, you know, probably the best way to figure out who's the best recruit is to just let them run against each other. And yeah, whoever wins is point. by definition the best vote getter. So I think we should do a little more of that. Um, but certainly Chuck does a fair amount of personal recruiting and is very persuasive. I just had this conversation with Kirsten Cinema uh, and, and a bunch of others. Um, Catherine's doing an extraordinary job. I think we're going to have a bunch of... Uh, 
uh, uh, female candidates that are going to be uh, inspirational. Um, but uh, but I also think that we shouldn't try to select who who's our best nominee any more than we should do that on the presidential side. Um, if we do take the Senate back, what are your feelings on the filibuster? Yeah, so... Um, you know, I knew you were going to ask I'm me that the impeachment and filibuster. Yeah. Um, listen, I, I think that I think we ought to look at all of the Senate procedures and all the ways in which Mitch McConnell has sort of um, uh, rigged the game. Yeah. And um, and that's one of them. Um, I think the way you do, you do reconciliation is another one of them. I also think we ought to look at Puerto Rico statehood. Um, and so all of these kind of structural reforms are important and, and serious and have to be part of the conversation. My own judgment is this, this just causes me anxiety because I just remember in, in October of 16, like sitting down with my staff, trying to figure out what good people we knew, um, uh, th that would be interested in populating the Clinton cabinet. And so this just reminds me of the way we put the cart before the horse. But yeah. your point is a reasonable one, which is we are talking about a sort of vast array of progressive priorities, and we're going to have to make some structural changes um, to the way the country works if we want to actually implement them. Well, I guess like follow up to that, win the Senate or not, is this a point where like, do you see Republican senators, you work with Republican senators where you're like, you know what, on a big issue, maybe it's not a progressive priority, maybe it's not a really ambitious proposal, but I might be able to get we might be able to get 51, 52 votes sure. or even 60 votes for this sort of medium range proposal that's not quite so ambitious. Doubling money for the Centers for Disease Control. Yeah, Important, like but a not middle class tax cut. Sure, okay. <laughs> like, do you think you could find Republicans to work with in the Senate or how, how broken is the Senate and how partisan is it at this point, I guess? Uh, it's it's not the old Senate. And yeah. I think part of what we're dealing with is that there, it's such a strong institution over time that everybody's trying to recreate the Senate of the 70s and 80s and 90s. First of all, it wasn't that great for people who were not in power, right? So this idea of comity and civility, it's important and it is does characterize the institution, but it's also that it was comity and civility among people who were in power who were primarily older white men. Yeah. And so people were getting screwed during those periods of civility yeah. pretty deeply. So that's one part of this. Um, the other part is that underneath the battles, we've been able to do pretty well on appropriations where, you know, there's an old saying there's there's three parties in the Senate, Democrats, Republicans and appropriators. And so we've been able to reject most of the most draconian things that Trump and Mulvaney have proposed as it relates to EPA, the National Park Service. I mean, they wanted to eliminate or not eliminate, but drastically cut CDC and NIH funding. And we just went ahead and not and not just rejected those proposals, but but massively increased uh, medical research uh, funding. So there are glimmers of hope, mm -hmm. and I still want to cultivate all of that. But the, the ability to be an effective senator, in my view, is contingent on your ability to compartmentalize and be super disappointed with someone and, and then collaborate with them the following morning. It's like parenting. Yeah. Okay. Uh, senator, there's a lot of loose talk among some of your colleagues, uh, uh, Private Rubio, speaks openly about he acts like he commands the armed forces and that if Maduro moves uh, to take military action against the opposition in Venezuela, he will lead the charge like the Rough Riders into the country. Do you think there's any appetite for Trump to actually take military action in some place like Venezuela where there's clearly no legal authority and you guys would have to, I don't know, pass a bill? 
Yeah, we'd have to do an authorization of the use of military force. That's number one. Number two is Maduro's a bad guy, and, and, and we hope there's a transition in leadership. Sure. But what you have to do is use all the tools in the toolkit. And uh, and I think you really ought to take military action off the table. Um, that's what I think. As bad as this as this leader is, we do not need another war, and certainly not in this hemisphere. Um, but uh, John Bolton is behind all of this stuff, and he's he's cooking intelligence on Iran, and he's banging the war drums. And I think Trump sort of likes it to the extent that he thinks it's got electoral punch, maybe in Florida, and he doesn't want to look like a wimp. Um, but now he seems to be like, well, I, you know, I wanted to rattle a few cages, but I, I, yeah. and I, and I think he thought that. You know, there was talking. There was talk about he was on a tar, Maduro was on a tarmac, and it was you know it was yeah, basically going to be a coup. It was done, and now that it's not done, he's thinking, well, what's our next play, Mr. Bolton? And so, um, but I think we should understand that John Bolton is driving the bus on foreign policy. And for 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 you know, I would say half of your listeners who don't remember John Bolton, he's the guy that his whole thing is cooking intelligence and getting us into uh, wars. <laughs> so him up out That's of his whole shtick. And, and, and yeah, he's been doing that for a very very long time, and he's he's very effective at it. I mean, he's not a clown in that way, and he's now doing it in in in, in multiple countries. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Pod Save America is brought to you by Fast Growing Trees. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the United States with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S. alone? You can grow lemon, avocado, olive, or fig trees inside your home on top of the wide variety of houseplants available. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer free plant consultation forever. The experts at Fast Growing Trees curate thousands of plants for all climates, locations, and needs. They're available 24-7. You can talk to a plant expert about your soil type, landscape design, and how best to take care of your plants. Landscaping, you know, it's, it's, they may, you know, you get, it's, it's expensive. expensive. It's expensive. And honestly, like, it's, it can be harder than you think to keep these plants alive. We've yeah. killed off a couple of them in our For day. sure. But, you know, with, with Fast Growing Trees, you got this uh, support line 24-7. You call and you say, hey, how do I keep my lemon tree going? And they say, water it more or yeah. something. Yeah, anyway, very right. excited about Fast Growing Trees. Right now, they have some of the best deals online, like up to half off on select plants. And Pod Save America listeners can get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code CROOKED at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com. Use the code CROOKED at checkout. Fastgrowingtrees.com, code CROOKED. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Branka, we got some questions? Yeah, we got lots. Um, Okay, so everyone here loves you on Twitter. Something you tweet tweet about a lot, climate. Um, so people want to know what your top three specific policy proposals that you want to see in any Green New Deal style legislation. 
Oh, it's a really good question. Uh, first, um, I, I believe we need a carbon fee or carbon tax. And the reason for that is that it's just been proven to transform the economy quicker. Places that have done that have been able to make uh, quicker progress on clean energy than anything else. Uh, second, I think one of the most brilliant parts about the Green New Deal is that it recognizes that you can't just do a carbon fee or a cap and trade or some kind of renewable portfolio standard as much as all of those are effective policies because what you end up doing is creating the sense that this is an elite project and this is another thing that can be sort of traded as a derivative on Wall Street. And that was, you know, Macron's problem in France. And I believe that's why the ballot initiative in Washington state uh, failed. There's, there's a saying a good friend of mine uses uh, in, in Hawaii, paint a picture and paint me in it. So if we're going to build a climate movement, it has to not just be coastal um, uh, uh, liberals who are sort of configuring some technocratic solution. And, 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 and that's essential. So we do need investments in communities. And the last thing I'll say um, is we really have to be very serious about bringing in organized labor. Um, because coalition politics matters, because the Republicans do it sometimes better than us, but also because that should matter to us. If people who, who represent the workers that we purport to represent and fight for are uncomfortable with aspects of what we're talking about, then that isn't about, hey, you're afraid of this and you're not truly progressive. That is the, the truly progressive thought process and next step is, okay, let's sit down. And let's figure this out together and let's charge up the mountain together. So, or, so, so involving organized labor, I think, is essential to implementing a Green New Deal. Yeah, that was the original line in Titanic. Is that right? Paint a picture and paint me in it. Is that right? <laughs> I just made that up. Oh, God, I was super embarrassed. <laughs> Can I just follow up real quickly on Priyanka's question? Because, you know, you get all this praise for being great on Twitter, but your colleague Chris Murphy tweeted, uh, those of us who follow the Brian Schatz Twitter feed know that he is consistently both grim and humorless. <laughs> and so, you know, that was a shots fired from Mr. Murphy. So I, I took, I, I did a little examination of his Twitter to see how, you know, lit it is. And uh, you know, here's a couple examples. Turn on C-SPAN 2. I'm heading to the Senate floor now. <laughs> uh, excited to have U.S. DOL Secretary with us in Connecticut today to showcase the success of our Eastern Connecticut Manufacturing Pipeline Initiative. Uh, happy Easter, everybody. Ralph Wiggum GIF. Um, <laughs> do you think that he's winning the, the battle? Everybody unfollow Chris Murphy. Okay. <laughs> um, There's one thing you take from this live stream. <laughs> <laughs> no, Chris and I have a lot of fun on Twitter, and I think um, – and I, I think we're a, a book or two, but there are very few of us who actually operate our own uh, accounts. You're at, and, the, you're at the controls. Yeah, we're at the controls. And, um, and that means periodically I say a jackassy thing, but I think that's fine. Um, uh, were you about to say more than periodically? No. <laughs> that's funny, but I wasn't. I, think, I was actually going to say, why are so many of your colleagues afraid to uh, operate the machinery? I don't know how afraid they are, um, but some of them are getting. Sheldon Whitehouse is t tweeting his own stuff, nice. and, and it's getting. And by the way, Sheldon has his own voice. I was excited and, for converts. And is um, <laughs> so more and more um, people are getting interested, but also everyone's communications team is against it. Oh, interesting. Including mine on an ongoing basis. Huh. Hmm. Mixed feelings, let's say. <laughs> is that true? <laughs> I'm getting, we're getting there's mixed some messages. Mixed messages from yeah, your mixed own. Messages, yeah, mixed messages. How do you feel about this, <laughs> All right, we have more questions. Uh, the people want to know what issue do you think isn't is not being covered enough right now, and then are there issues or news stories that you think are getting too much coverage? Um, let me just take the first uh, uh, the first part of the question: housing. Um, we have an affordable housing crisis across the country, 
And, you know, I thought it was in sort of just high cost, high density places like Hawaii and, and, and big cities, but it's actually all the way across the country. And, um, and it's a huge middle class uh, issue. And I think the extent to which this trade war is harming manufacturing in the Midwest and causing the bankruptcy of farmers sort of gets um, only talked about in the context of whether the Dow went up or down. And I think if, you're, if your farm went bankrupt, but the Dow's at 26,000, none of that matters. So we need to talk a little bit more about that. I'm not going to get into what gets too much coverage because I think that's just a little bit obvious. Two follow-ups. <laughs> One, as a patriotic American who respects the institutions uh, and the, um, you know, the, the, the pride we take as, as citizens of a country that ended the age of royalty, um, <laughs> do you think it's uh, embarrassing, if not shameful, that Americans care that uh, a uh, royal couple in a place uh, uh, in some place in Europe had a baby. I feel like I'm going to get in deep trouble for this one. No, I think it's cool. I mean, Ugh. listen, if I like basketball, yeah, love or it. if I follow, I mean, if I follow basketball. I follow Game of Thrones. If there's a if, if if there's a royal baby, like you get to be excited about whatever you want to be excited about. Okay, Senator Shots, I'm going to forward you something called the Federalist Papers. After we're <laughs> done here, you can take a look at that. Uh, <laughs> I actually have a, ser- <laughs> <laughs> I have a serious. <laughs> I have actually a, ser- a serious question about housing. So there's been there is a lot of talk about the fact that we have a housing crisis. People can't afford to buy homes, right? Mm-hmm. We see that all across California. It's a huge problem. Um, how much of the housing crisis is actually a sort of symptom of an economic inequality crisis? Like, how do you worry at all that efforts to target housing? is an effort to avoid the larger structural forces that are preventing middle-class incomes from rising. Well, I think it's an income problem, but it also is a supply of housing problem. And one of the things that we liberals, I think, have to get straight in our minds is that planning and zoning has its place, right? But planning and zoning was the original redlining, right? It was the continuation of, of discrimination, especially against African-Americans. So all of these laws about minimum lot size and what you could build where uh, was was to preserve uh, the segregation of communities. And now it's not so much, it's not totally racial segregation, now it's economic segregation. And lots of liberals still sort of haven't wrapped their mind around the idea that if we really want everybody to be housed, that you're going to have to see it. I mean, we had this conversation in Hawaii when we were moving towards uh, a higher and higher percentage of our uh, energy being generated from clean sources that people say, well, I'm for clean energy, but I don't want to, that windmill is too big and it's near my house. If we're going to generate hundred uh, percent clean energy, we're going to see a lot of windmills. And if we're going to house nurses and firefighters and young people and the elderly, you know, we're going to have housing in places that we that might make us initially uncomfortable. So I, I feel very strongly about this. I, I take your point that we need to deal with income inequality sort of as, as a more general proposition, but housing is an urgent matter now. All right. So people in the live stream want to know about the heartbeat bill that was signed this week in Georgia. Do you think this will survive? And then what do you think about uh, ideas like stacking the Supreme Court, things like that? Um, Well, on the heartbeat bill, I think it's it's just important to say reproductive choice, uh, abortion services are health care. So when we say they're coming after your health care, it's not just they're coming after eviscerating the ACA through the courts and through legislation and through administrative actions, but they're coming after women's health care in a, in a very straightforward way. And I think the most sort of apocalyptic um, claims about what the Republicans uh, want to do over time are turning out to be true. 
Um, so that's number one. I have no idea if it'll survive uh, the court process, but certainly um, they think it will, and they think it will for the very simple reason that Mitch McConnell um, has declared the United States Senate to be a legislative graveyard, and basically every week we go in and we process nominations to the circuit courts and the and the district courts, and they believe that they will succeed not just on this, but on other sort of anti-progressive legislation all the way through. Got it. Not great. Not great. Kyle from YouTube wants to know, what's some advice for those of us in red states that are trying to flip them blue, or at the very least, purple? Oh, uh, first of all, run for office campaign. I mean, look, uh, California used to be purple. California used to be purple. Um, Texas is turning purple. Uh, Georgia um, is turning purple. And so one of the reasons that we have failed in places is that we just haven't, literally haven't even tried, right? And, I mean, this is a funny thing, but the, the, at one point the state house of Hawaii uh, was uh, within four seats of being flipped to Republican rule in, 19, I think it was the uh, year 2000. Wow. And there were some districts that we thought were solidly Republican, and over uh, basically 20 years, we've systematically taken those seats back. And now the uh, balance of power in the legislature is 46 to 5 in the House and and I think 25 to 0 in the state Senate. Nice. Wow. Uh, I almost say that sheepishly, but, you know, so be it. Own but it. the point is you have to compete everywhere and, and don't give up because it may not be this election cycle that you're successful but um, eventually it'll succeed. And one other thought I had is I, I just remember what a star Jason Kander uh, is and was. Yeah. But one of the reasons that he was such a big deal is that there, was no, there were no other Jason Kanders, right? Mm -hmm. And that's because we hadn't done any work on building our bench and having members of the legislature and school boards and, and, and small town mayors. And now you have a whole generation of, of House members, um, uh, Stacey Abrams and others, who are younger, who have served in legislatures or as small town mayors or lieutenant governors or city prosecutors who are our next um, who are our next up when there's an opportunity for them. Can I ask a question about that? You know, we've seen this. We've seen incredible candidates like Jason Kander come close. We've seen uh, uh, some defeats in states like uh, Missouri. Uh, you know, we've, we've we've had trouble in in the Midwest. And yet. When ballot initiatives around democratic priorities, whether it's Medicaid or the right to work or, well, preventing the right to work laws from passing or minimum wage, they pass in places like Idaho and Utah and Missouri and Arkansas. What is in, What do you see as the difference between a democratic policy and a democratic candidate right yeah, now? Yeah, so I, this, is a, this is a tough one because I, I, I know what I want to say and I probably shouldn't say it, but I'll just go for it. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> nobody's watching, it's nope, fine. No, um, no. It's, it's I think nothing. people like democratic policies, but they don't always like Democrats. Like they just don't like us. They feel um, that we are being condescending, um, that we do feel like we have answers. So they love these policies, right? And, you know, in Florida, when, when Andrew Gillum loses and, and my good friend Bill Nelson loses, there's this ballot initiative that, that decisively wins, that, that, that gives back the franchise to vote uh, to, to people who are incarcerated. And so you're right to point out this phenomenon. I don't have like a I don't have like a magic solution for it, but Idaho Medicaid won, right? Right. And I'll also just say that if, if we know that there's that kernel of truth, then we have to find those progressive priorities. And they are progressive, 
but they also happen to be compelling to independents and a lot of Republicans and run on those next year. There is no shame in saying, I care about these 10 things, right? But these six things are the best vote getters, right? And I don't, I mean, on Twitter, it's like, if you talk like that, you're some big sellout, but winning (laughs) is very important. And winning is, is maybe the most important thing. It's not that you sacrifice your, it's important for a majority of people to like your proposal. Yes. And in the country. And it's, and it's an important okay. thing. It's okay if one of your ideas is unpopular. You can still be for it. Right. But you don't have to put it in a TV ad. Right. And, yeah. if, and, if you, and if you find out that Medicaid expansion um, and bread and butter issues are the ones that will cause you to be successful in the election, that's good, not bad. Yeah. I called I Jason this morning. Did you? Yeah, he, did. he sent me a voicemail. So. <laughs> He's got one of those very millennial voicemails. It's like, don't leave me a voicemail. Text me. So oh, really? Both. Isn't the yeah. most millennial voicemail, the voicemail is full? Oh, yeah. That's, yeah, that's, that's, my, that's where that's I move. That's Yeah, you're going to have to try ages. harder to get me. Because a voicemail is just someone saying, I wanted to talk to you on the phone. You didn't want to talk to me, but I just had my half of the conversation anyway. <laughs> it's incredibly rude. Just text me. How is that different from a text? Well, a text is, I guess it's not. I've been defeated again by the... <laughs> From the greatest deliberative body. <laughs> wow, I love this. Can you be here always? <laughs> we have more questions from Twitter. Christina wants to know if you are lonely in the Senate now that half your colleagues are in Iowa. <laughs> <laughs> Great question. Well um, you know, half my colleagues are in Iowa. Um, and it's kind of exciting. Like, you know, I send texts to them and try to be as just like personally supportive as I can. And... Um, and it creates an opportunity for those of us who are not running to kind of dig into the policy piece. Because, listen, when you're running for, even if you're running for the state house, it's like not the time to be doing policy development if you're out there trying to get votes. And certainly if you're running for the United States Senate or the presidency, there's like no time anymore to sit down with your like ledge team and try to solve a problem. You're already off to the races. And so some of us have to, and I don't mean this facetiously, some of us have to do the legislative work so that if and when we take power, we're ready to roll. When the Republicans took power sort of, to, I think, to their surprise, legitimately, they were not ready to roll on health care. And that's one of the reasons that they failed. If you were a campaign manager on a Democratic presidential campaign right now, what would your big piece of messaging advice be? What would you want your candidate to be talking about? For Dan? the general? For the, for the uh, both. Because we know we don't want to pivot too much between the primary and the general. So I think um, I think the the first of all, let's start with the general. I think it's healthcare, 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 and I think we have to make we have to prosecute the economic argument. Mm -hmm. And I think I don't think we should be so afraid of the stock market that we can't make the case that people are struggling because people really are struggling. And then in the background, there's going to be a drumbeat of hey, this is the most corrupt administration. Uh, certainly in generations and maybe ever, right? And I don't think you necessarily have to be the candidate articulating all that. Maybe in a debate, you kind of have an exchange, but that's not going to go into ads. But I think we would be unwise not to mention, oh, by the way, right? This is terribly corrupt and awful. And Ryan Zinke and Scott Pruitt and, and all the rest of these guys are literally enriching themselves. And they're not just enriching themselves in the abstract. They are enriching themselves at our expense, uh, on the primary side, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, listen, I, I've been to Iowa once, and it was like and I had to like disabuse everyone. I'm not running. I'm just trying to be helpful, whatever. Um, but, you, on, but, but you were thinking about it. No, I was not. I was not. <laughs> I got not but if somebody people. asked you the question, aren't you thinking about it? <laughs> well, however I can best serve, John. No. Um, 
That was a Clip joke. It. Send it out. Yeah. That's two in a row. We got oh, Abrams yesterday. It, we got yeah. shots on the hook today. <laughs> we, got, we got potential candidates coming through here. <laughs> Not running. Never will. Thank you. Never will? Um, never Wait, will. Wait, come yeah. on. Never. Hey, why are you doing that? <laughs> why say never? Yeah, because yeah, what we really need is... A, anyway. Um, um, so uh, on the primary side, I actually do think that we're going to... Those debates are going to be more important than your average debate because I think you know, probably 80%, whatever they're telling you, my guess is 80% of the voters are totally undecided, right? Yeah. You may have locked into your specific preference, but if someone has a good moment, you'll be like, yeah, I like her, done. Right, right. And so part of what we're going to measure is sure is whether or not someone lines up, you know, on your issues, on your core issues. Are they good for climate? Are they good for civil rights? Do they have a good background? Um, do you agree with them on X, Y, and Z? But a lot of it is an audition for the general. And I think it's okay for us to look at someone and say, how does that person match up against Donald Trump? So this electability question um, can very easily turn into a proxy for basically whether or not you're a white dude. Right. That's terrible. But I think lots of voters really are trying to figure out who's our best, who's our most talented communicator, who's our best leader to, to, um, to marshal the resources of what we hope will be the biggest grassroots movement in American history. And I think it's okay for a voter to evaluate that, but we should just remember that the traditional analysis of electability is mostly always wrong. Right. When senators text, uh, are there emojis? Are there gifts? Like what's the vibe with your colleagues? No, it's like full punctuation, capitalization. Oh, like sign, like writing an email. Like yeah. love, yeah. Chuck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's how my mom texts. There's, like no, there's, no, there's no texting with Chuck. Yeah, the, really? I don't, I don't, I mean, not with me, no. He has a flip phone. I mean, I guess he could text um, from it. I think he can receive texts. What is the uh, <laughs> latest or earliest time Chuck Schumer has called you? Oh, well, I mean, it, there's a six-hour time difference. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's 3 a.m., you know, Hawaii nice. time. And I just go, hey, Chuck. You know, it's a blocked caller. Hello? I know it's Chuck. Who else is calling me at 3 a.m. In, in Hawaii? But, I, you know, hello, Mr. Leader. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sweet. Okay, so what... There's so many good ideas out there from all these 2020 candidates. What legislation proposed by a candidate would you be most interested in seeing getting passed? Oh, gosh. I mean, let me list a few because, you know, this yeah. is one of those things where it's like Careful. I love all my siblings exactly the same. <laughs> um, um, let, let's let Elizabeth has she has plans for everything. And I sit on the banking committee with her. And I, I think that she has an extraordinary ability to understand the not just the problem as a general proposition, but what pathway uh, could be taken to fix it. Um, Bernie, I think, has diagnosed part of our problem as a society, which is that we really do need to do movement building, not just like the sort of technical aspects of, of, of legislation. Um, I love Corey's uh, uh, baby bonds idea. I love what Corey has done uh, on environmental justice. I think that's quite overrated. I mean, excuse me, not overrated. Excuse me, Corey underrated because he's done these environmental justice tours and nobody has um, really paid, I think, enough attention to it. Uh, 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 Kamala's Lift Act, um, what Kamala wants to do uh, for for teachers. Jay Inslee just signed probably the second best climate bill in the country after Hawaii. Um, and I'm sure I'm leaving someone out and that's going to cause gonna me to get in all, trouble. We're going to be here a while. So. Yeah. yeah. Really? But so, I do love so what, all my children equally. Really hearing that uh, you despise John Hickenlooper. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like Hick. I, I met him when he was a uh, mayor. You call him the loop over here. <laughs> and I, I'll also say that um, I'm excited about climate plans coming out. And I'm going to personally make an effort 
to just see to it. I'm not going to get into the technical aspects of it because you guys know probably better than I do that once you get into an administration, it becomes, okay, we're going to do climate. Now what's possible, right? right? But um, Beto's plan is serious. Jay's plan is serious. And I anticipate all of the major candidates will have a major climate plan. My litmus test is, do you have a sufficiently ambitious climate plan? Not, does it look like mine? Mm -hmm. Right. Okay, this is a little bit different from the 2020 question asking about your Republican colleagues. So who is the most unlikely collaborator you've ever had in the Senate? And can you tell us about a time where someone surprised you with wanting to team up with you on an issue or to work on a bill? Yeah, Jim Inhofe. Um, so Jim Inhofe, uh, for those of you who don't know, wrote a book called The Great Hoax um, uh, about, yeah, about climate change. And... Um, you know, and I, you know, I, I, I got to the Senate and ran for the Senate because climate is my, you know, lifetime passion. Um, but uh, Jim and I did a bill together to honor uh, Native American veterans. And frankly, on this bill, he was a prince and a very skilled legislator. So this is the problem of the Senate, which is that you if you're not able to compartmentalize, then you will be totally ineffective. Because, I mean, I could have very easily said, listen, you think climate change is a hoax. Not just that, but you wrote a whole book about it. I, I can't deal with you. But if you, if you operate that way, especially in this environment, by process of elimination, you will find no partners. All right. Well, we'll switch to some fun questions because we have a lot for you as well. Uh, first off, this, I think, was asked at least 20 times. How do you kill time on your flight, deal with jet lag flying from Hawaii to Washington all the time? What are your tips for us? Oh well, tweeting obviously is how I kill my time on <laughs> uh, uh, on the on the airplane. I um, I don't really have any good advice uh, uh, about airplanes other than um, it's super dehydrating and people don't really think that way. So get an aisle seat and then drink lots of water. <laughs> but I'm grouchy a lot. I mean, uh, you know, Mondays are bad, and you know, Fridays are I'm I'm a little jet lagged, but at least I'm home. So um, that takes the sting off. Go go Wi-Fi. Can you do something about those people? I cannot. <laughs> <laughs> Is there any accommodation made for people from Hawaii or Alaska who clearly have a more challenging time getting to votes on Mondays and Thursdays than Delaware? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. God. As well as Sherrod says, no whining on the yacht. It's fine. Got it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> the guy who's never been on a yacht. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. What's the best time of the year for people to visit Hawaii? Oh, uh, oh gosh. There, there are no bad months. I think a lot of people, especially on the East Coast, think it's like super muggy and terrible certain times of year and all the rest of it. It's pretty great all the time. Um, spring's fine. January, December. I, there's not a bad month. Yeah, whale season in the in uh, the winter. Yeah, whale season in the winter. Got all the humpbacks with their surfing the we summer. We went in February. It was wonderful. So cool. Beautiful. It's pretty much always great. It's paradise. No one is disappointed when they go to Hawaii. That makes sense. When you're in D.C., so not at home, what is your favorite thing to go eat? Where do you go? What are your spots? Oh, my eating habits are very depressing. <laughs> um, sometimes district taco, but that's like just B plus. And, and then I moved to the side of the hill where I'm like across the street from a grocery store. So like my, my meals are sad. Like in that hot, sardines that hot on rice. Sort of like wheat thins, cheese, salami, fruit. Sar sardines on rice. Are you a prisoner? <laughs> <laughs> I like sardines on rice. It's like a like a rail car yeah. hobo. That's a sad meal. <laughs> Hot sauce. Yeah, did you, yeah, that's right. Did you get off the rail car and put your take your bindle and go to the Senate? <laughs> I don't know what a bindle is, but yeah, it's that like ball on a stick. Oh, know? I got it. The rotisserie chickens are good because they last for a couple of days. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> but but I basically I don't eat very well. 
Okay, got it. Something so, we've also Thursdays, yeah. we've also been discussing a lot in this office: Game of Thrones. Oh yeah. Um, do you watch and do you have thoughts on how this should end? I do. Well, I don't have any thoughts about how it should end. Well, I want Tyrion to be to, to be to be on the Iron Throne. Tyrion. That's what I think. Oh, cool. okay. Good. But you here's the thing: this is kind of a weird correct answer. What's that? It's the correct answer to want Tyrion. I like short cerebral guys. Yeah, you know I mean? no, it's right back. Same, same. <laughs> um, but I, it's such a bad, so I'm on the red eye at 8 p.m. And so I could watch it live at like three in Hawaii, but I, that's kind of a waste of a, of a good Sunday afternoon with my family. So I end up watching last week's episode uh, uh, like, Tonight or tomorrow during the day. So you Whenever haven't I haven't seen last week's episode I haven't yet. Yeah, so so. Sorry, yeah, everybody. How do, you, how do you deal with that? You're on Twitter so much. You're I just... get off Twitter for about 24 hours. Smart. <laughs> wow. Not 24 hours. Now, if your <laughs> tweets are <laughs> important crazy. for the messaging of the Democratic Party, is the fact that you're not keeping up with Game of Thrones like hurting our chances to win in 2020? Yeah, I think it hurts. <laughs> <laughs> it's called Benny. Last question. You got the <laughs> Another thing that's very important to crooked media fans: Do you have a dog? Uh, yeah, we have two, we have two dogs. I have two. like a I have like a tiny little lap dog, a Bichon Shih Tzu named Shumai, and then we have a Great Dane called Jupiter. Whoa, oh my gosh. variety! Yeah, <laughs> were, you, were you going for a, sort of a, a comedic walk? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, kind of. We have a Christmas picture where the like yeah, it looks it's a funny picture. But I, what we wanted was a a big guard dog that wasn't actually dangerous but terrifies people. Yeah. who may be up to no good. Yeah. Were they like a buck eighty? No, she's not. I mean, she's small for a great Dane. She's like 130. But she's, you know, on her hind leg, she's a good seven she's, feet tall. Yeah, that's amazing. That's cool. <laughs> Senator Schatz, thank you for joining us. And please always, uh, you know, feel free to use Crooked Media as your layover. Yeah, anytime. Yeah. Stop. Anytime. <laughs> Whenever you want. <laughs> nice we, to see you guys. Well, it's well, great to run out the shots clock with you. Oh, no. That's well done. Yeah. Shots uh. fired. Thanks to Brian Schatz for joining us today. And uh, what did we think of Game of Thrones Hold last on. night? Love it as a pin give tweet. Him, give, him, uh, Hold on. give him your spoiler buffer. Spoiler buffer. This is a spoiler buffer. You're driving. Turn the volume down. If you're on a bird scooter, pull over. You're hitting pause. That means you, Jay Inslee. Yeah, Jay Inslee, take your, earpod, take your AirPods out while you're scooting around. All right, you ready? Shut it off. Shut it off. Shut it off. Thrones. <sighs> I'm sad. Loved it. Unbelievable. Look, I loved Game of Thrones from the very beginning. In fact, I remember a time where sitting on my couch at 13 bro nine and turning to my friend John Favreau and saying, hey, I got something I think you should watch. And he's like, what's this shit? <laughs> Fuck you. But I got him to watch it. And you know how he said, it's all about the map. Check. Let me just show you a map. And I said, that's how you're going to get me to watch it? And it worked. It did work. <laughs> <sighs> You know, what can, what can be said that hasn't already been said online? I would direct you to my Twitter to understand where I'm coming from. I, um, I just believe they didn't have the time. And, I, and it makes me, um, you know, I, I have no joy in saying this. They didn't have the time to tell the story they needed to tell. And uh, I just think um, that's a bummer. That's a bummer. Tommy, you have thoughts? I think it's a TV show. <laughs> no. And that I, everyone needs to calm the fuck down. I don't want to calm down. And yeah, I, I enjoyed take it seriously. last night. I, I enjoyed watching Khaleesi's pretty, you know, obvious, likely transition to a psychopath. Uh, seeing the dragon mow down all kinds of innocent civilians, it got a little tiresome. I didn't need to see the third burned child's 
charred body on the on the ground, but it was in service of a broader point, I think, about power corrupting absolutely. Uh, yes. You know, I, I don't know. I It was a fun episode. I don't know how much more we needed about Daenerys' turn that hadn't already been there. From the day she arrived at Westeros, she had wanted to just... she. There's episode episode two of season seven. She gets to Dragonstone and she says and she and she's looking at the board and she's got the three dragons and she goes to Tyrion. You know, if my brother was here and he had three dragons, he would just be going after King's Landing right now. He would just be burning it right now. And Tyrion says, You don't want to be Queen of the Ashes. He says it first. And then she looks at him and she goes, Okay. And so the next time that she's meeting with Lady Elena and Ilaria Sand and all the rest of them, and they're plotting everything, and they say, burn King's Landing to the ground. And Tyrion says, what do you mean burn it to the ground? Tens of thousands of people will die. All these innocent people will die. And Ilaria Sand says, it's war that happens all the time. And Lady Elena looks at, at, at Daenerys and she says, listen, she's like, these people are like sheep, these lords, these people of Westeros. They only respond to fear. You are a dragon. Act like a dragon. And, and Daenerys looks at her and is sort of like, you can tell she's like, well, I like that advice. But she had just been listening to Tyrion. So she's like, no, no, I don't want to be Queen of the Ashes. So she listens to Tyrion. She does what he says. Tyrion has stupid plans. Causes her to lose two dragons. Causes her to go north for some fucking, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, capture a white to show Cersei. It's all about negotiating with Cersei. And finally Daenerys is like, what has trying to negotiate with this woman got me? I mean, the, the, the hole <laughs> this in this, is, this that was, explanation <clears throat> is she could have flown her ass over to the tower and torched Cersei and been done with it and not killed literally every person. This is the problem. Right, but Everything I think, I think she was, was like, true. I want to send a fucking message. These people will only like me if they fear me because otherwise they love Jon Snow and they're about to know that Jon Snow is the true heir to the throne. They... No, she's like, she look. Everybody Cersei. knows that if 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 the person who's not true to the throne murders everybody in the city, that's that's how you get them on your side. I, that's a my, tyrant. That's what a tyrant does. Here, look, fear. Every this is the problem. Everything you're saying is true. The broad strokes of her transition are all there. The problem is, I don't think they did the work to set it up in that moment. We are it like if you what what, what 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 would we have needed? Do you think? I don't understand why. After all these after all these years, we've built up these two characters, Cersei, the supervillain of the show, Daenerys, who is a uh, merciless, ruthless person who, after one child dies, locks up her dragons for a year, right? Someone who contains both good and bad. They set this up for years and years and years. We have two episodes of conversation. We have a massive battle. We have last week's episode that I don't know what it did. And then we have this confrontation Cersei's basically watching the episode with us. She's she's in she's sitting on her couch, you know, turning on HBO Go to see what happens to King's Landing. She has absolutely nothing to do. And then Daenerys wins. Not challenged by Cersei, not pushed to be evil, not not taken to her extreme. She wins. The bells are ringing and then looking up at the Red Keep. By the way, set up for 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 episodes of a place where Cersei has surrounded herself with human shields, a place where if Daenerys really wanted to do what you're saying, prove that she's ruthless and instill fear, could have gone right to the Red Keep, killed everyone around Cersei, and killed Cersei, which still would have resulted in this debate, or, well, I think this undoing we're about to see of this person who was too ruthless uh, to, be, to be supported by someone like Jon. But instead, she looks up at the Red Keep after the battle is won, and then she kills everybody. I and I just think, though, it's don't like, buy How it. many times has Cersei tricked her? How many times has Cersei played? Like, she, you know, for all Daenerys knew... 
going right to the red keep is exactly what Cersei wanted her to do. But she all was of just, this, I think at some point she was just like, fuck this shit. I have been so screwed by my advisors, by everyone else. I'm going to burn this place to the ground because that's how I know I can rule through fear. And that is, <clears throat> and that is reading into her facial expressions a bunch of motivations and understandings mixed together that may in, in together make sense but aren't shown by the show. And I know it's not shown by the show because they had to do something which I've never seen a show do before, which is in the previously on... In the final moments before the episode begins, they show you a scene from last week in which in which yeah, we see all the voices. That was they cool. added voices from years and years of the show, and I believe something that hasn't happened yet. Maybe I'm not totally sure. They added voices behind her to make the argument for what we're about to see because they knew they hadn't successfully done it through the actual episodes. They yeah, invented they a everyone, scene. They knew everyone wouldn't fucking remember everything because people's memories are like. Fucking two days they old. gave her a motivation. <laughs> they put a glad. motivation behind her eyes, which we had not seen before, and they just every it was look there. Fire and blood is her fucking. Uh, I think, family. Her family motto is fire and another, blood. Another <laughs> another episode, and they, they could have done it. Made her. I don't agree with either of you guys. I just think they made her look like she turned crazy, and the whole flip of the coin, uh, uh, all of the family, like you're either crazy or you're not. It's fifty fifty. They made her look insane in those moments, and then she heard the bells and she went nuts. But this is the point, right? Like, thought, we don't I, know. Yeah, we don't I think know it was because less it's madness not set than political calculus. But like, I guess it's all like to to your point, love it. John thinks what he thinks. I think what yeah. I think. Neither is grounded in anything that we learned from the show. And it's just, all just and this is an instinct. Totally. And like this is my my problem because I I just think they could have look. I understand not wanting to be in Iceland and making more episodes, and I understand being done with the show. But to me, what I'm seeing is basically characters. In part, I don't even blame them. In part, I blame the fact that we're outside of the books, books that maybe never will be wrapped up because it was too sweeping, too big, too broad. I mean, George R. R. Martin is like, see you next Christmas, eight Christmases ago. I think, it's, I think it is unfair to say that this is all about them wanting to finish early. We don't know. Like, like, we, like Tommy just said, it's sort of whatever you read into it. Like, that, like good storytelling does that sometimes. Like, I don't... I mean... Who knows? We could be right. Maybe they just wanted to finish, but like this could be exactly how they wanted to finish the series. I just, I think mean, there's, there's like these characters course, are being rushed all, around the map. Well, that yeah, there's plenty they're flying of, around. There's so many silly devices for sure. Finally, the confrontation between uh, Euron and Jamie we've all been dying to see since uh, he washed up on the shore by coincidence yeah, well, I mean, five seconds earlier. That one yeah, really didn't yeah, that make was, any sense. I would have also, are, why are they fighting? Well, to your point, I would have liked <laughs> one more scene of Cersei being evil or, or doing something. I would have liked like one more scene of Cersei for sure. She I literally guess, but, scoots by the hound. She is so extraneous to her own undoing that she's like, this is what uh, my, this is what Dan said last night. He's like, um, if you'll excuse me, I just want to get by him trying to Oh, oh, scoot, 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 I, scoot, I would have scoot, loved by. to have seen the hound just bust out a sword and hack her head off. Like, that, it, <laughs> it, is, it is so out of character that he would wait and let Arya take care of it or whatever the thinking was. Arya, meanwhile, Arya, years and years, she gets within a hundred yards of her final mission and she's like, Oh, I think that was totally within her I, character. I don't, I think it was totally earned. What I, 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 I actually agree. I agree it was earned. <laughs> I take back what I said. <laughs> I'll give you. I'll give you Jamie and Euron meeting. Just, oh my! What are you doing on this beach? <laughs> uh, I'll give you them meeting. I'll give you Cersei walking by the um, the hound for sure. I'm sorry. I'm um, just gonna try to get by. But sorry, I'm, you guys look like you guys. I don't want to get in the way of a brother conversation. You know, I, I, I feel I, kind of out of place. I'll give you that for sure. I'm all in though on uh, on the Daenerys thing. I think it was. I think it was well done. But anyway, <sighs> we'll see what happens when um, you know 
uh, Samuel Tarley's on the Iron Throne. I just <laughs> the other thing too is I'm just not gonna have my hopes up anymore. I said this to Tommy earlier, but like a I, random Dothraki guy is not gonna be every time. Uh, every every time I think this final season has a trick up their sleeve, a dead dove falls out. So I am bummed. I'm just gonna admit it. I loved it, but I will tell you, I still my prediction for how the series ends right now. I still believe in you too. Democracy reigns. Yeah, John's got the happy ending. Yeah, I don't think it's very. I think I don't think it was pretty happy to get. Oh no. D- democracy reign should not be taken as a happy ending. It should be taken as we had to endure years of mass slaughter to get to this point where we're sort of going to now fucking mm-hmm. get by. Yeah, democracy going really well over here in reality. Right, that's exactly right. Yeah, Wait till- yeah but I didn't say that was a happy ending. I said that was an <laughs> ending. Chernobyl, you know, after the Soviet Union falls, right, a bunch of American scientists go over to uh, Eastern uh, to Eastern Europe and the former Soviet states to kind of secure the nuclear material. And as I was watching Chernobyl, I was like, Who's going to come to America to secure our nuclear material? <laughs> All right. Well, can't wait till next week. <sighs> Bye. Bye. same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at discounttire.com meet treadwell your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle get your best match in one minute or less with treadwell by discount tire i'm what you might call very good at hide and seek and since we got xfinity we have wi-fi all over the house even in my super secret hiding spots So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary.